This is the third talk in a series of talks on the five fundamentals, titled The Third Fundamental, The End of Suffering Comes by Way of Gnosis, recorded November 10, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This is the third uh, in a series of talks that I'm going to be giving, have given, and I'm going to continue to give over this uh, coming year about the five fundamentals uh, of the uh, spiritual path and the seven stages. The first fundamental, or the essence of the first fundamental, is that consciousness alone is absolutely real. And without going into great detail, because if you want to hear about this, you can, uh, in a month or two, you'll be able to check out the library, the previous talks. But basically what this means is that everything in our experience is made up of consciousness. That there are not individual things, people, beings, uh, or whatever. That it is all a manifestation of consciousness. And a simple analogy for this would be if you took a rope and you tied all sorts of knots into it. Big complicated knots, simple knots, fancy knots. You have all these forms of knots, but ultimately, really, you have nothing but rope here. That's all there is. The essence of the second fundamental is that ignorance of the real is the root of suffering, which means that our ignorance of this uh, condition that everything is consciousness is what causes us suffering. And in that talk, there was a, an analysis of how this ignorance gives rise to a delusion of self, and then the self feels limited, and then it seeks uh, to grasp, it has desires, uh, through these desires uh, arise attachments, and it's through the immediate cause of suffering as our attachments to worldly things, because all these things, since they aren't really individual things, are all ephemeral and transitory, we are constantly disappointed, because whatever we become attached to, eventually we're going to lose. So, today we're going to talk about the third fundamental, and this reads in full, The end of suffering comes by way of gnosis, or the sacrifice of ignorance, through the grace of a perfect realization that consciousness alone is absolutely real. So the third fundamental really ties into the first two fundamentals. That The first fundamental states this spiritual fact, if you like, from a mystic's point of view, that consciousness alone is absolutely real. Uh, the second fundamental said that it's our ignorance of this fact that is the root cause of our suffering. And this third fundamental is that ignorance uh, comes to an end, and since ignorance is the root cause of suffering, then suffering comes to an end with it. Um, it comes to an end through uh, this gnosis, which is described as this realization of that first fundamental, that consciousness alone is absolutely real. Once that's realized, then the whole ball of wax of suffering just melts away. So we want to look at... Uh, this fundamental more carefully, go through it and see exactly what this means in more detail. So let's start with this word gnosis, which I will write up here on the chalkboard. It's G-N-O-S-I-S. And this is a, a Greek word. Uh, it's still actually, you find it in English dictionary, so, but the original word is Greek. And gnosis actually is the opposite of ignorance. Uh, ignorance, I-G-N-O-R-A-N-C-E. The root here is G-N-O, just like in gnosis. And the I is a negative. So, so ignorance really means not gnosis, not having gnosis. That's what ignorance means. As I say, it's a Greek word. It comes from uh, the Greek, but it's etymologically related uh, more deeply within the Indo-European language to uh, some Sanskrit words, janana and prajna, particularly. These are two words prominent in Hinduism and Buddhism, both of which mean this same sort of uh, knowledge that we're going to be, that Gnosis means, that we're going to be talking about. The root is the J-N-A, is, the, is a, just a, a, a difference of G-N-O. So this, this uh, word Gnosis has very, very deep roots and ties in with 
both uh, in Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, they use janana and prajna to mean this kind of knowledge. Every tradition uh, will have some word for this, even if it doesn't come from the uh, Indo-European language. Uh, in Arabic, it's uh, marifa, which is, means, again, this sort of knowledge. In Chinese, it's ming, uh, means illumination. Uh, a common popular word today is enlightenment. Every mystical tradition will have some word that indicates this. Sometimes it's a word that doesn't sound like it has so much to do with knowledge, but for instance, like union with God or uh, God realization and so forth. But we'll get into that in a minute here. More importantly than the, the uh, etymological history of the word is that gnosis is a special kind of knowledge. It's not your ordinary knowledge. And the Greeks had various words for different kinds of knowledge. English is a very poor language in this respect, unlike other languages. We don't have specific words that are, uh, operate in a very precise way to distinguish things. We have one word, basically knowledge. It covers a lot of ground. In many other languages, they have a lot of different words that are much more precise. In the ancient Greek, for instance, they had at least four words, basic words for knowledge. One was doxa, means opinion. Orthodox means right opinion, basically. Uh, techne, which means the knowledge of an artisan, or it's more like a skill. Technique, we have a word that comes from that, technique. Episteme, which means logical knowledge, mathematical knowledge, rational knowledge. Uh, our, our word epistemology, which is the study of knowledge, it's a technical, philosophical word, it comes from that word, episteme. And then finally, gnosis which is the direct, unmediated knowledge of ultimate reality. It was used, for instance, by Plato in this way. Uh, it's also used in the, uh, in the Christian Gospels this way. The uh, Christian Gospels, if you don't know, were originally written in Greek. And when Jesus says, know the truth and it shall make you free, that word know has gnosis as, as its root. It's a verb and has gnosis as its root. So Webster's International Dictionary defines it as immediate knowledge of spiritual truth. Not bad. I, a, a mystic would say it's immediate knowledge of spiritual truth, but also more than that, just truth, capital T, truth. In contemporary terms, uh, one way to get more of a handle on Gnosis is to, is to talk about what it isn't. And in our culture particularly, we usually think of knowledge in coming in two forms, conceptual knowledge and experiential knowledge. For instance, Grace has just come back from India. I've never been to India. So she can say, oh, I know India. I've been to India. And I can't say I know India that way. I know something about India because I've read about it and so forth, but I don't have that experiential knowledge of India. I lived in Los Angeles for a long time, and I can say, oh, I know L.A. well. Not something I'm necessarily uh, proud of, but I have a, uh, an experiential knowledge of it. I also have intellectual knowledge of it, but... Uh, the, also that advantage of having actually been there, experienced it for myself. Skills also have this quality of experiential knowledge. I, I know how to drive a car, so part of that is intellectual. It means I know what the road signs mean and so forth, but another part of that is I know how to operate the steering wheel and the brake and the uh, clutch and so forth. But Gnosis is not experiential knowledge. Now, often mystics will write about it in terms of experience. They'll say, uh, you have to experience this for yourself because Gnosis is closer to experiential knowledge than conceptual knowledge in the sense that it has immediacy of experiential knowledge. But it is still not experiential knowledge per se, and we'll get to why that should be the case in a moment. Neither is it conceptual knowledge. That is, any sort of knowledge that you would uh, get from a book uh, any sort of knowledge that comes through the whole thought process. So it's not something that can be figured out. You cannot uh, arrive at gnosis through logical deductions the way you can arrive at a mathematical proof, for instance, or some sort of logical proof. So this is uh, quite mysterious. Uh, if if uh, gnosis is neither experiential nor conceptual, what could it possibly be? And as we'll see here in a minute, this is one of the problems mystics have of trying to communicate this, because it really cannot be directly communicated uh, in this way. One of the reasons that Gnosis does not refer to any experiential or conceptual knowledge 
is because the Shankara, great Hindu mystic, says, Brahman is beyond the grasp of the senses. The intellect cannot understand it. It is out of reach of thought. Such is Brahman, and that thou art. Now, Brahman is the Hindu word for this ultimate reality, which we're calling consciousness itself. In fact, they define Brahman as pure consciousness. And he's saying that uh, consciousness cannot be experienced. And it cannot be, it's beyond the grasp of thought. And if you, let's investigate this for a moment. If you try to describe consciousness in terms of ex experience, any sort of experience, what could you say about it? I mean, awareness. Uh, okay, that's a synonym for consciousness, right? It just is. It just is. That's one of the problems. It just is. You can't say it has a particular color, for instance, right? So if you say, I've experienced consciousness, and I say, well, what's it like? You can't say, well, it's kind of gray, and it's about this big, and it weighs about 10 pounds. What can you say about it? Not this, not that. Not this, not that. That's one of the ways that uh, mystics do talk about it. That's a Sanskrit term. means neti, neti, not this, not that. And often mystics um, uh, use the, the via negativa, uh, a series, a string of negative statements, to sort of point you in the, in the right direction. That is to, to get you away from trying to um, conceive of this or experience it in normal, everyday terms. If you start to think about consciousness, we have a word consciousness and we can think about it and so forth, but if you're thinking about it, all you're cognizing are thoughts, are concepts. But you're not actually getting to consciousness itself. This is why Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic, writes, when the soul contemplates what consists of images, there is for the soul something lacking. Even if the soul contemplates God, the soul lacks something. But if all images are detached from the soul and it contemplates only the simple one, then the soul's naked being finds the naked formless being of the divine unity. So already, uh, Meister Eckhart is saying that as long as we're uh, working in the, in, in the realm of images, any sort of images, symbolic images, poetry, whatever, we are not getting directly to this ultimate reality. But if we can, somehow can ignore or rid ourselves of these images and look directly, immediately, then he puts it quite beautifully. He says, the soul's naked being finds the naked formless being of the divine unity. That your consciousness finds that ultimate consciousness. And since both are naked, both are formless, they are, there's no separation, there's no difference between them. Another reason that Gnosis is not conceptual or experiential is because when we talk about concepts or experience, we always mean a, a, a dualistic apprehension of things. It, it implies a subject and an object. If I say, uh, oh, I uh, know Los Angeles, I've been there, there's an I someone to know, and then there's the experience of being there. And the experience is something separate. We, at least we think of it that way, that's the way we, what we believe, than the I. Because right now I'm not experiencing Los Angeles, but apparently I'm here. And in uh, intellectual terms, the same thing. We have, the, uh, we have the I that thinks, and the I that figures out a mathematical truth, the Pythagorean theorem, and arrives at the end and says, oh, I know, uh, I know that A squared plus B squared equals C squared. So there's always implied in these uh, forms of knowledge that are conceptual or experiential, a dichotomy between a subject and object, a self and a world, an I, a perceiver in here, and something to be perceived or to be known. But as we talked about when we were discussing the first fundamental, the consciousness consciousness alone is absolutely real. The other part of that is that this whole dichotomy between self and world, I and other, is somehow imaginary. It's not ultimately real. So to cognize what is ultimately real, you have to sort of cut through this, this dichotomy that we superimpose upon our experience.
This is why the Buddhist Lakamatara Sutra says, self-realization of noble wisdom, that's their way of talking about gnosis, is not comparable to the perceptions attained by the sense mind. The sense minds are the, through the sense faculties. Neither is it comparable to the cognition of the discriminating and intellectual mind. Both of these presuppose a difference between self and not-self, that is, subject and object. Self-realization is based on identity and oneness. So there's a big clue here, and in fact, Gnosis has often been defined as knowledge through identity, not knowledge of a subject uh, that a subject has about some object, but if you like, self-knowledge. Knowledge simply because that's what you are, who you are. This is why the great Sufi, Ibn Arabi, says of Gnostics, he sees only God as being that which he sees, perceiving the seer to be the same as the seen. So what does that mean? This, the, this is the Gnosis involves this recognition, realization, that there is no difference between the seer, the experiencer, and what is seen or what is experienced. In Hinduism, this is... Tatvam Asi, that thou art, the great overriding slogan of all uh, Hindu mysticism, that thou art, that refers to Brahman, this ultimate reality, pure consciousness, consciousness itself, and the I refers to not the ego I that you think you are, but your ultimate identity, who you truly are, you are that, so there's an identity here, a oneness. Uh, it's not only that you are pure consciousness, but consciousness itself is not different from all these forms. So the that that you are doesn't refer to just some wooey state of pure consciousness somewhere or whatever. The that is your own immediate experience. Consciousness is the fundamental nature of all this as it's arising. This is why Lali Shwari, this great uh, Hindu mystic of the 16th century, writes... When the mirror of my mind became clear, I saw that God is not other than me, and this non-dual knowledge completely destroyed all thought of you and I. I came to know that this entire world is not different from God. Uh, and Meister Eckhart, a Christian mystic, says exactly the same thing when he says, everything stands for God and you see only God in all the world. Now, again, we tend to read these things, then we tend to think, gee, this is some mysterious, uh, otherworldly sort of teaching. But look around you. Just look around you. What you see, the blackboard, fireplace, other people, window, walls, pictures. What mystics are saying is that is all you. Right now, in this moment, that is who you are. All of that. It's a very uh, uh, empirical teaching that mystics give. It's not a teaching about some other world or some other place. It's a teaching about the true nature of your own experience as it's unfolding moment to moment, day to day. This is what we are ignorant of. So, Gnosis is not knowledge that comes through this dualistic experience or thinking. It is a knowledge through identity of oneness, and therefore it cannot be communicated in words, because words themselves divide up this world. That's just the same reason I can't say what consciousness is. If I distinguish consciousness from uh, anything, which a word will do, if I say consciousness, that implies there's such thing as not consciousness, then I've already limited it. I've already divided it up. I've already uh, separated out from all of this. This is why Ibn Arabi says, So the Gnostics know, but what they know cannot be communicated. It is not in the power of the possessor of this most delightful station, higher than which there is no station, to coin a word which could denote what they know. So this is a, a big problem, and this is why mysticism is called mysticism. <laughs> mysticism itself comes from a, a Greek word that, that's related to our word mute. It means you can't speak. You're mute.
It cannot be spoken about. So this raises the question then, how is this gnosis attained? You can't get it from any teacher. You can't get it from any book. You can't get it from any uh, spiritual experience even in the sense of some uh, high state. You might go into meditation and you get some high blissful state. That's not it. That's ephemeral. That's going to pass away. How do you attain this gnosis? Well, going back to our third fundamental here, it describes it, first of all, as a sacrifice of ignorance. Now, this is interesting because we usually think of ignorance as a, a lack of knowledge. So I might say, uh, I'm ignorant of the Chinese language. I don't understand the Chinese language. I have a lack here. Uh, I might be ignorant of chemistry or any sort of knowledge. I might be ignorant of some skill. Uh, I don't know how to skydive. So I'm ignorant in that sense. That's the way we usually think of ignorance in our culture today. But from a spiritual point of view, ignorance is not the lack of anything. Ignorance is actually something that's going on. This is how Shankara, the great Hindu mystic, puts it. He says, ignorance is nowhere except in the mind. The mind is filled with ignorance. And this causes the bondage of birth and death. So, from a spiritual point of view, ignorance isn't the lack of something. It is actually a kind of an activity going on in the mind. And this activity is the activity of thought, or even more basically, it's the activity of our imagination. Constantly naming things, dividing the world up, thinking about the world in, this, in that particular way. And most especially, it's the imagination dividing the world up into I and other, into self and world, into creating a, a kind of limited uh, being in here, and then creating a boundary, a line that separates that from everything out there. But it's not even this activity of thought and imagination that is the true problem. After all, this is what humans are, are excel at, you know. This is, this is what it means to be a human being. It's the fact that we do this and then come to believe that this product of this activity, this world uh, that is created of individual things and, and uh, separation, is real. That belief, then, in this world is our delusion. So it's not even the activity itself that's the problem, but something very subtle happens here. We come to believe it's real, and this is an activity and a belief that constantly has to be reinforced by the mind. It's not just something you sort of hold there. This is uh, one of the great purposes of gossip. If you ever uh, pay, start paying attention to, to your own gossip and other people's gossip, at least 90% of it's about checking in. Uh, am I living the same world you do? Am I thinking about the world the same way you are? And we reassure ourselves. Yes, I'm okay. You're okay. Yes, oh yes, we all have see reality the same way. This is why we feel very comfortable with people in our own culture, not only our own culture, our own little clique, you might say. So if you're a, a liberal Democrat, you like to be hang out with liberal Democrats. Uh, if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you like to hang out with fundamentalist Christians. And then even beyond, if you start visiting other cultures, it can get quite strange and quite spooky. So if you go to really foreign cultures, like if you went out and tried to live among, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe the Trobriand Islanders out in the South Pacific, you would find their way of seeing the world is very different from yours. They live in a different world. Just incidentally, the reasons there's such an emphasis on quieting the mind, silencing the mind, going on retreats where you don't speak and so forth, is to cut out this a constant reinforcement of this imaginary world. This delusion captivates our attention, we find it so fascinating, that we literally end up ignoring reality. And that's another meaning of ignorance here. Uh, ignorance means something active. We are actively ignoring the reality that is immediately always present to us. This is why Simone Weil, she was a great mystic of this century, she writes, Sin is not a distance from God, it is a turning of our gaze in the wrong direction. So, all the time we're looking in the wrong place, you might say. And you might say that part of what, how you attain Gnosis is to stop looking in the wrong place. Neti neti, not this, not that, is the teaching about no, 
It's not this, it's not that, it's not this, it's not that. Now, it's, it's easy to say where the wrong place is, but as Ibn Arabi said, no mystic can actually point you to the right place. Gnosis dawns, or, or awakening happens, when this belief in this imaginary world dissolves. Then that delusion just vanishes. That world just vanishes away. This is uh, why the Buddhist uh, great philosopher Nargajuna writes, when one speaks of the rise of wisdom strictly from the standpoint of ultimate prajna, there's that word for gnosis again, it is to the extinction of ignorance that one refers. In other words, gnosis isn't some, uh, or doesn't require some special effort of uh, attention or thought or something else. When ignorance vanishes, when delusion vanishes, it's just there. You might say gnosis is that intrinsic awareness that consciousness has all the time. In fact, uh, you couldn't think and you couldn't experience anything if gnosis wasn't already present, already operating, so to speak. And it's not even something that's operating, it's just in the nature of consciousness. Just like it's in the nature of a mirror to reflect things. It's in the, in the nature of consciousness to be aware. It's this naked kind of awareness, immediate awareness that is present all the time in all states, wherever you are. Often, ignorance is compared to clouds covering the sun, and gnosis is just simply the clouds vanishing, and the, there's the sun. Being, the sun's always been there. It's not something new. Muhammad said, You shall see your Lord just as you see the moon on the night when it's full or just as you see the sun at noon when there is no cloud before it. This is a very common metaphor analogy you'll find in many mystical traditions. When the clouds part, there's just the sun. It just is there. Now, why does the fundamental say, after this, uh, through the sacrifice of ignorance, what happens is there's a perfect realization. This word, a realization, words like it, recognition, and so forth, are very common synonyms for gnosis in many traditions. Mike mentioned earlier, God-realization. I read you in the Lakamantara Sutra, they talk about self-realization of noble wisdom. Realization and recognition, both these words, have a quality about them that is very immediate and direct. It's quite a bit the way uh, how gnosis is. It's something that happens very suddenly. And it's something that is not the end product of a uh, chain of reasoning, for instance. And it's not necessarily something that happens by any shift of your experience. A very common analogy for this in the East is uh, this mistaking a rope for a snake. The idea is you go walking down a path and uh, suddenly you see a snake coiled up by the side of the path and you jump back and then you look more closely and you see that it's actually just a rope and your mind is superimposed upon this rope, you see this little delusion of a snake. And so that startled you and caused this fear. But if you look directly, you see there's really nothing to be afraid of. There's just a rope. In fact, that's also a nice analogy because it shows you a little bit about how suffering ends. When you mistook this rope for a snake, that caused your suffering. But once you see the truth, your, your suffering ends. There's no more fear because you realize there's nothing there that can harm you. I've tried to think up uh, more personal analogies, and I actually do have one that I remembered that is a kind of cute. It takes a little time to tell it, but I thought it'd be worth just giving you something different. Some of you have heard some of these analogies before, and a couple of you have heard this story before, but this is a true story. When I was just starting in Hollywood, this was many years ago, and I was just becoming a little successful, and I was invited to a Halloween masked ball costume party thing. And at the time, I was married um, to my second wife, and we decided to go separately and not tell each other what costume we were going to wear. So it was going to be kind of fun. So I went to um, one of these costume places in Hollywood, you know, that they outfit for movies and stuff, and I got this Cyrano costume. Cyrano de Bergerac is a character out of a play, and he's a 16th century swordsman type, three musketeers type, but he's a poet, and he has a big nose and all that. And I rented a fancy costume with the nose, and I learned some lines from the play so I could spout them. And I showed up at this party. The party was held at the AFI, the American Film Institute, which at the time was housed in this 
big mansion that had belonged to some oil baron in the 20s, whatever. And there are many rooms to wander through, and there's a big courtyard outside. It was all strung with lights, and there were tables with food on it, and people serving wine and champagne. And there was about, oh, 200, 300 people there, I guess. And after work, I got put on my costume of work, and I went to the party, and I got there. And I started wandering around, and I was having a lot of fun, and I was spouting my lines from the play and this and that and talking to lots of people. And in the back of my mind, I was keeping my eye out for my wife. Now, she was petite, blonde, fairly easy to spot. And I didn't see her, I didn't see her. And it was about an hour goes by, and I'm having some more wine and feeling very good. And uh, at one point, I was uh, in the courtyard, and this other woman comes up to me. Uh, she says, oh, she asked me for a light. So I gave her a light gallantly and started spouting some more lines, and she started talking to me. And I started flirting with her a little bit. And this was going on, I don't know, about five or ten minutes. And suddenly I realized, oh my gosh, this was my wife. <laughs> she had a wig, a black wig, she, and she had a little, one of those little eye masks. She came as Josephine, the wife of Napoleon. She was in this uh, full-length dress. She had gloves up to her elbows. She had, she had uh, switched her brand of cigarettes, so I didn't recognize the cigarette. You know, her hands were covered, so I couldn't see any rings or anything. She put on a little accent, and it took me about five or ten minutes. But I remember very distinctly, this feeling came over me. I suddenly realized, this is my wife. I started also, because I'd been flirting with her. <laughs> but... Uh, that was interesting because afterwards she didn't know whether to be angry with me or not because I was flirting with another woman, but the other woman I picked to flirt with was her. So <laughs> talk about identity confusion. <laughs> but the point of the story is that that sudden realization. It's not something I figured out. Do you know what I mean? It just dawned on me. Just being, it just dawned on me. Nothing had changed. She didn't take the mask off and say, oh, it's really me. It just sort of dawned on me. It just all came together. And I, oh, my gosh. <laughs> that quality is what uh, Gnosis has. Although it's not the realization about the true nature of a specific local situation, which in this case that realization was about, the true nature of who I was talking to. It's a realization about the true nature of everything. This is very important that Gnosis is not something very complicated or very subtle, or very complex. It's not like learning a physics equation or trying to sort out a proposition of philosophy. It's exceedingly simple and obvious, and that's one of our problems. That's why we constantly ignore it. This is why Shankara says, when the mind has been made pure, liberation is as easy to grasp as the fruit which lies in the palm of your hand. That easy and that obvious. But the fundamental also says something else. It says that this perfect realization comes to a grace. A grace, what does that mean? Uh, Meister Eckhart, this Christian mystic, after discussing the importance of selflessness on the path, and what a path is really made up of is about examining who you think you are, finding your selfishness, your sense of self, and then seeing if that's true, and then also practicing selflessly to see what would happen, uh, what it would be like to live without this sense of being a limited, bounded self. Then he writes, yet this annihilation and diminution of the self, however great a work it may be, will remain uncompleted unless it is God who completes it in the self. So he's saying there's a limit to what you can do on your own on a spiritual path. And ultimately, Gnosis comes through the grace of God in Christian and Islamic and Judaic traditions. But the same thing is true in Eastern traditions. Another great Hindu mystic, Ananda Moyamai, writes, everything comes by his grace alone. This, of course, is a fact. Of course, it's a fact to her because she's enlightened. But what she's saying is that even everything that happens on a spiritual path is ultimately, in a sense, grace. And this is true even in Buddhism, where they have no idea of a god that could grant any grace or anything like that. In Buddhism it said, the thing called enlightenment is nothing that can be attained by practicing, nor can it be created by human hands. Self-realization of noble wisdom is a purification that comes instantaneously by the grace of the Buddhas. 
So this is kind of mysterious. Why even in Buddhism, which is not a theistic religion, why do they have this idea that somehow this comes through a grace? It's, it cannot be attained through practice. That's, that's quite a contradiction, by the way. You know, here you are told to practice, 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 and ultimately you say, well, it, uh, practice uh, does not create uh, gnosis. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, the problem is here, and this touches on really the, the, the paradox that is the heart of the spiritual path and the mystical path, and why it is called a mystical path, a mysterious path, because at the heart there is this paradox that the mind cannot understand or figure out. But we can uh, perhaps illuminate it somewhat by uh, representing the self, the limited self, the self that we think we are, as a circle drawn on this blackboard. Now, first of all, as I said before, this line, this circle, and all, by the way, the busy stuff within it, the, I don't know, you're just clouds and thoughts and, uh, and this and that, our whole way of experiencing the world, all this is created by an ongoing activity. Uh, often in Buddhist and Hindu traditions, it's described as a firebrand. This is actually a closer description, maybe some of you have actually experienced this on uh, 4th of July night. If you ever had a sparkler and you go out at night and you whirl it and it makes like a ring of light and you keep it going and if you're good at it, you can make looks like a solid ring there in the middle of the night, you know what I mean? It looks like you'd reach out and grab it. It's an illusion. There is no ring there. It's, it's all being created by this activity. So this sense of self is being driven and created by this activity. And a very much a part of that which we come to experience is will. Self-will, volition. I want this, I don't want that, I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do that. That is really at the linchpin of our sense of being a self. And so, as long as this will is, this sense of will is operating, as long as we believe we're doing all these things, we are actually continuing to recreate, recreate, recreate this sense of self. So, if you will to become enlightened, you, the, that very will is generating what mass enlightenment. Do you see what I'm talking about? This is why in all traditions, ultimately, at the end of the path, they talk about surrender, self-surrender, surrender of will, surrender of your will to God, or ultimately a, a spontaneity, as the Buddhists would talk about it more. See, the problem is no one ever became enlightened. That is the realization. There is no one there to become enlightened. In fact, this is just what uh, the Diamond Sutra, a great Buddhist text, says. The Diamond Sutra, here the Buddha is talking about the importance of the bodhisattva vow, that is, you vow to save all sentient beings, not to enter nirvana for yourself selfishly, but to be so selfless that you'll even give up nirvana to save all sentient beings. And the Buddha is talking to his disciple Shibuti. He says, Subuti, uh, rather. Subuti, any good pious disciple who undertakes the practice of concentrating his mind in an effort to realize highest perfect wisdom should cherish only one thought, Namely, when I attain this highest perfect wisdom, I will deliver all sentient beings into the eternal peace of nirvana. And yet, Sabuti, if the full truth is realized, there's that realized again, if the full truth is realized, one would know that not a single sentient being has ever been delivered. And why, Sabuti? Because there are no sentient beings to be delivered, and there is no selfhood that can begin the practice of seeking to attain highest perfect wisdom. There's a wonderful example of this paradox that you'll find in every mystical tradition at the end of the path. Ramana Maharshi, a great uh, Hindu mystic of this century, uh, says, coming from a different tradition, he says, if one inquires for whom is their bondage and liberation, it will be seen there for me. If one inquires, who am I? One will see there's no such thing as the I. So there is no one in bondage, and there's no one to be liberated. The Sufis, and also is true of the Kabbalists, the mystics of Judaism, and the Christian mystics, put it a different way. They say it is not the seeker who becomes enlightened, it is God who becomes enlightened, so to speak. At the end of the path, as Rumi says, when the heart was annihilated within God, God remained. Then the heart understood the object of God's words. I myself am the seeker and the sought. 
So, in other words, it's when the self gets out of the way, this gnosis, this awareness, does not belong to you. It belongs to God, so to speak. What the spiritual path does, and we're going to get into this in a more detail in a future talk, is really bring all this activity to an end by exhausting it. And when all this comes to an end, just comes to a, a stop, that's like the clouds parting, and there's just the sun there. So a spiritual path, as I've often said, doesn't promise you success, it promises you failure. To go on a spiritual path is to fail and fail and fail until all that activity is just totally exhausted. And when it's all exhausted, it just ends. But uh, another way of looking at it, from the point of view of a seeker, Gnosis is like being run over by a truck. So what can you do to get run over by a truck? <laughs> if you sit in this room like we're all sitting here now, our chances are very, very slim of getting run over by a truck. It is conceivable a truck could come barreling down Chambers Street, turn the corner, turn this corner, and suddenly get out of control and, and come slam through the window here and, and run somebody over. Highly unlikely. You do better if you go and sit on Chambers Street down there. Quite a few trucks come down Chambers Street. Uh, you do better if you go sit on Chambers Street in the middle of the night. A lot of trucks come in the middle of the night. If you really want to get run over, however, dress in black, completely in black, put a stocking mask on your face, go out and sit in the middle of I-5 at midnight. Then your chances of getting run over are, are very high. So in a certain sense, being on a spiritual path is placing yourself in situations where your chances of this realization occurring increase, increase, increase. And that's the answer of why, if it cannot be attained through practice, why bother doing the practice? Hafiz, the great Sufi, writes, Although union with the beloved is never given as a reward for one's efforts, strive, O heart, as much as you are able. It's through that striving that we exhaust this activity. And we place ourselves in this position where the likelihood of this realization occurring in increases dramatically. And in every tradition you'll find this. In the Zen, we say, uh, unless the sweat has run down your back, you cannot attain satori. That's, that's the sense of this effort. So there's this dual instruction. Strive, put in this effort, work hard, and yet it's not going to work. And you're looking in the wrong place. And this is why uh, one of the roles of a spiritual teacher is always try to, to pull the rug out from under wherever you have landed and think, ah, this is it. Then by one means or another, they get you keep moving, keep moving, keep moving until all this just comes to an end. Now, last part of this is then we said that, that Gnosis brings about an end of suffering. How does Gnosis bring about an end of suffering? In discussing the second fundamental, which we did last time, uh, we went through this analysis, and we got to the point where we said, if there is no self, there can be no suffering. Only selves suffer. Uh, the Buddha said, mere suffering exists, but no sufferer is found. Deeds there are, but no doer is found. And uh, one way to illustrate this is to use the blackboard again, and I, I want you to throw me out some forms of suffering that you've experienced. And I'm going to put over here, I. I what? Hurt. Hurt. Good. Okay, next one. I fear. What? Fear. Fear. I am afraid. Okay. Desire. Ah. I have insatiable desires. <laughs> well, desires that are... Phil, that's the insatiable quality of them that usually causes the suffering. I lost. I was just going to say. I have lost. Whatever it might be, you can fill in the blank here. I'll leave a blank. I'm worried. I'm worried. Okay. I'm going to contribute one of my own here. Uh, I am lonely. Now, we normally approach the problem of life as represented by this list of statements about our suffering by trying to get rid of hurt, 
trying to get rid of fear, trying to get rid of having desires, trying to get rid of, or trying to hang on to things that we are afraid we're going to lose, uh, trying to uh, eliminate whatever causes our worry from our life, and uh, loneliness, trying to find somebody or some people or whatever to eliminate loneliness. And the problem with this approach, as we saw in discussing the um, second fundamental, is that actually you can't get rid of these things. You might, you might solve it locally one time, but they keep recurring, they keep coming back. There's no ultimate solution uh, to any of these things. If we look at it from the point of view of what's written on the right-hand side of the blackboard, but supposing I take out the eye, I eliminate the eye. In one fell swoop, I've eliminated all suffering. It's not that hurt won't arise, uh, particularly we're talking about physical pain. It's not that fear won't arise as a biological reaction. You know, you're walking down the street and a dog leaps out. It's not that adrenaline won't run through your system. It certainly will. If you don't eat for a day or two, hunger is going to arise, you know. Your bladder gets full, I said before, you're going to have to go pee-pee, you know. Buddha had to go pee-pee. Yes, he did. Uh, it's not that you won't lose things in the sense that, that uh, you know, your car won't get stolen as, as mine did or your house won't burn down or things like that. Uh, even worry, if we mean worry just in the sense of a reaction to circumstances, for instance, sometimes Jennifer's late getting home if she's been out seeing her mother or something, and I start thinking, hmm, well... She should be home by now. But if we mean uh, existential worry about life, uh, I'm going to get to that one in a minute. And the reason I put loneliness, lonely, I'm lonely up here, is because some of these also will evaporate. If there is no I, there's no one to be lonely for. Loneliness vanishes from life. Worry in the sense that, not worry... In the, in the sense that your mind starts thinking, well, now let's see, is it what time should I st start calling the state troopers, which is a practical kind of worry, but that existential anxiety about life vanishes, right? So basic primal emotions, biological bodily emotions that human beings have are all there, but there's no I, there's no one that's the, the victim of all this. So that's one uh, way of uh, illustrating what this means, that gnosis brings an end to suffering. The very realization that there is no individual one itself just wipes out that left-hand side of the uh, column here. The same thing, by the way, is true of death. And death is really one of the sources of our biggest worries. This is why Jesus said, I tell you truly, if a man puts my sayings into practice, he will never see death. That sounds outrageous. What does that mean? Well, obviously the body died. But the point is here, you aren't the body. You aren't this body. So what dies? The body dies and, and uh, disappears. But that essential ultimate consciousness that you are, that Brahman, it can't die. Not only can it die, it's actually beyond time. Time itself is a creation of this imaginary thought process. <clears throat> so the teaching that you don't die isn't, isn't about that you, you know, your physical body is preserved, there's some secret elixir that you can inject into your body and keep it going or something like that. This is how Bokar Rinpoche describes it. He says, he's a Tibetan uh, Buddhist. What is suffering? What is death? In reality, they do not have any existence. They appear within the framework of the manifestations produced by the mind wrapped up in an illusion, just as they appear in a dream. In the emptiness of mind, that is the mind without this I, there is no death. No one dies. There is no suffering and no fear. It's a little bit like going to a movie and watching a movie. And in a movie, uh, people are born and they die and they make love and they fight and they argue and they do all these things, but there's no one there. Not only that, if you include your own reactions and see that that is all also part of the movie, you react with, uh, you know, cheering on the heroine and uh, booing the villain and all these things. All those emotions are there, but there is no one there from a mystic's point of view. So it's not that the movie ends, 
But it's the realization that, oh, this is really like a movie. No one is actually being born and dying. Now, all these ways of describing this make it sound rather negative. And that is certainly one side of it. But what's even harder to communicate and describe is the positive side of it, which is an absolute enjoyment, bliss, love, delight. What consciousness is like, and this is a common metaphor, particularly in the East, is like the sky. And through the sky, all sorts of weather passes. There's uh, calm weather, just nice, you know, those clouds look like big grazing buffalo or whatever, just calmly going by. There are great storms with lightning dancing off the mountains and thunder bursting here and there. There are gorgeous sunsets. There are pale, subtle dawns, you know. It can get really dark and moody, foggy. It can be bright and blazing clear. All this. And it's all enjoyable. It's all enjoyable. Why would you even want to stop a sunset and say, I like that, let's just hold that sunset, freeze frame. You know, in about an hour, two hours, three hours, you'd be saying, okay, that's nice, let's go get some pizza or something, you know? <laughs> the beauty of it is the changingness. And each mood, each, each, each moment of the weather has its own qualities. You know, something to appreciate there. So if you can imagine the, the sky is appreciating what is going on within the sky. That begins to sort of uh, communicate this. Another example that I can think of from my own experience is when I worked in Hollywood, I wrote some screenplays. And when you write a screenplay, you create characters. You create good guys, and bad guys, and, and uh, lovers, and uh, heroes, and villains, and all sorts of minor characters, major characters, comic characters, grouchy characters, you know. And as you're writing, the funny thing happens. First of all, if you're writing well, the characters themselves start to take over a little bit. And as you're writing, if you're really into the screenplay, and this is one of the ways you know you're, you're doing well, is you start to react. You start to get angry at your villains when they do something really horrendous. You, and you're thirsting for revenge, if it's a revenge story. Do you know what I mean? And if uh, someone sympathetic dies in the middle, you, you feel sad and so forth. Uh, I wrote one screenplay of, about Crazy Horse, and at the end it's tragic, he gets killed, he gets killed by one of his own people. And I was crying, the tears dropping on my page of the story that I'm writing. But all the way through, I loved it. It didn't mean that love was the dominant emotion that I was experiencing at any one moment. I went through all the emotions that the human being experiences. That's the whole point of a screenplay. But... Did I, did I uh, love any of my own characters less than the other? Did I not enjoy writing the screenplay? Do you know what I mean? There's this, uh, again, love, uh, enjoyment, delight that is not manifest all the time, but is the underlying motive of writing the screenplay. And this is why when people say uh, God is love and all this is a product of love, of it's God's gift, uh, or they talk about it as the Leela in the East, the Leela of God, the play of God. And this is an expression of the, the bliss of Brahman or consciousness. That's what they're talking about. It's not that you go around all day in a state of bliss, but underneath, no matter what is going on, there's this appreciation, whether it, it apparently on the surface is good or bad. I don't know anyone who expresses this better uh, than this person, who I'm going to read you this quote. I now realize, God, how much you have given me, so much that was beautiful and so much that was hard to bear. Yet whenever I showed myself ready to bear it, the hard was directly transformed into the beautiful, and the beautiful was sometimes much harder to bear, so overpowering did it seem. To think that one small human heart can experience so much, Oh God, so much suffering and so much love. I am so grateful to you, God, for having chosen my heart in these times to experience all the things it has experienced. It's all a prayer of gratitude. This is written by a woman named Eddie Hillisom, and she's writing it in a concentration camp just shortly before she was killed by the Nazis. And I, I picked this purposely as an example 
when mystics say there is a possibility of the end of suffering, if she can find an end of suffering in the most horrendous circumstances that we can imagine, then look to your own life. It's certainly possible for you. And from a mystic's point of view, really suffering is needless. It would almost be comic, except that the experience of suffering is real for people. But we spend so much time often wallowing in our little sufferings and don't spend the time actually trying to seek what is the source, to just investigate. See if what these mystics say is true. Because if what they say is true, that's astonishing. It's not just about improving your life a little bit. It's it's about being able to be like Eddie Hillison in these circumstances and still find life beautiful and still find uh, gratitude and uh, delight in it. So this is really the message, the heart of the message of the mystics, aside from all the mysterious paradoxes and trying to understand the practices of the path and all that. The real message is a very practical one. It's about our lives, it's about our suffering, and in very concrete ways. And it's all about the end of suffering. It's not about uh, finding some great philosophical truth, although it is a great philosophical truth, or a very simple philosophical truth. But really, if the, nothing else I want to leave you with is the purpose of this fundamental is really to communicate the whole purpose of a spiritual path, what it's really fundamentally about. And the next time you feel yourself uh, suffering, uh, any of those things we wrote on the chalkboard here, in pain, hurt, worried, anxious, and so forth, you might stop and think about it. Maybe there's a way to just to end all this. Maybe I don't have to keep going through these uh, cycles of uh, trying to solve these problems piecemeal and it keeps coming back and uh, whatnot. And if you start thinking like that, then you'll get interested in the mystics and you can pursue all the mystical teachings, you can pursue all the practices, and you can find out in your own experience whether this outrageous claim that they make is true. Can suffering be brought to an end? Only you can find that out. Only you can prove it to yourself. But it has to start with examining, looking at your own life. That's where the motivation comes. All mystics would agree with Jesus, who said, Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. So that's the end of my talk on the third fundamental. I hope that it illuminated it somewhat for you. If there are any questions or comments you want to make, yes. Why do some people have glimpses of enlightenment or Gnostic flashes? Ah, that activity almost ceases, or maybe ceases just for a moment. That we that we talked about this activity of willing, desiring, and uh, so forth. It sometimes happens in states of meditation. The mind and the body get so calm and so relaxed, uh, so something can flash through. The self, the veil, which becomes so thin that the the sun, you know, just shines right through. Now. If there isn't really a, a thorough exhaustion of that activity, then it'll start up again. And also because that, that glimpse often uh, generates a tremendous amount of manifest bliss, there's very often a seizing on that bliss and saying, ah, this is it, this is it, and really missing uh, the, the deeper realization that's to be had here. And then, unfortunately, that bliss in time will wear off and may wear off in a few days, a few hours, a few days. could often hang around for a few days, a few weeks, sometimes for some people years. But if you think that that bliss was it, then this is a very subtle state you're hanging on to. And like anything else, that state will evaporate. And so then there's a very subtle sense of I. You don't, you don't notice until the bliss starts to go. And then the, you start having the suffering, you know. Yeah. You mentioned um, during the analogy of the bus <clears throat> that if you want to get run over, you know, to dress block. Then you said you, you have to go seek. Oh, try. Excuse me. <laughs> Changed it. Whatever works for you. A bus will do. You said something about seeking the experience um, for Gnosis. And what came up for me was how does one know how to seek those experiences? I mean, does it. I mean. Well. Gnosis is not an experience, but there are experiences to be had on a spiritual path which are very revealing. And part of the maybe 
ties in with Mary Sang's question is, um, on a path you have insights, which you might say are like little Gnostic flashes. You, have, you can really have a, a very firm, direct insight, for instance, into the fact that everything is transitory, and through that you actually see how futile your own grasping is. And that insight then automatically uh, makes you less grasping after things. And the more you relax the grasping, the less suffering you'll have, uh, just, you know, in general in your life, you know. So these, these are experiential sorts of insights. That usually it's an experience that triggers it. And then if the insight is deep enough and profound enough, you, your life will start to transform long before you get to Gnosis, you know. So the experiences are important. I'm not saying that you dismiss them at all. But just ultimately, Gnosis is not any experience. All experiences will fade. May I ask you a question? Yeah. About grace. Yes. I'm really interested, actually, in the, what grace has to do with it. Because... Um, Sometimes you feel like you have these experiences without practicing, or really, like actually they are given to you. So really, what I mean, how much can you practice if indeed it it all boils down to a question of that you you receive the grace or you don't don't have it? Do you see what I mean? It it uh, it kind of contradicts a little bit the the, the notion of uh, you know. Uh, practicing it, because when it happens, really doesn't happen because you meditate, necessarily. It happens outside of meditation when you least expect it. Can. Uh, there, there have been cases where somebody had been spontaneously enlightened without any uh, apparent practice. Uh, if you look at those cases, though, the ones that we know more about in detail, for instance, Ramana Maharshi is a good example. Ramana Maharshi was enlightened when he was a young teenager, basically. Uh, had no particular interest in spiritual things before. Came home one day. Uh, he was living with his uncle, I think, from school. Put his school books on the table and suddenly felt he was going to die. Now, from that point on, it's very interesting what happened. Most people would panic, call a friend or go see an adult. It was the case of a teenager, you know, call a doctor or something. Uh, he didn't. He decided to see what death was all about. He lay down on the floor, and he even imitated rigor mortis, you know, uh, trying to fully experience death. And he went through the whole death process in his mind as kind of a visualization to the point where he had lost everything and realized that all of this mind-body stuff was not who he truly was. Now, you see, he cooperated with the experience, you might say. He went through the spiritual path in about... 30 seconds, I don't know how long I this took. I agree with you on that. That is to say, like, that, that's what the Christian, you know, teaching, like, you have to die to your old self in order to be reborn in the new one. Right. That, that, so what's important is that dying, I mean, metaphorically, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, you are using it. So you have to die to your own self. This is, this is the must. After that, things become easier. After that, it's grace. Then, this is what Meister Eckhart said. The work that you do on a spiritual path is work towards selflessness. Because, you know, it's also, it's also the case, if you have no preparation for Gnosis and don't know what's happening, it can be a terrifying thing. Uh, there's a woman, uh, Susan Siegel, down in uh, the Bay Area. She's, I read, read a manuscript of her book that's coming out soon. And she, uh, she had some experience with TM, the, you know, Transcendental Meditation, and, and then she gave that up and... Uh, she was waiting for a bus, a bus on a Paris street corner, <laughs> and suddenly her, herself disappeared. And for 10 years, she thought something was dreadfully wrong. She had just had nothing but fear, fear, fear. She went to all these therapists who told her she had depersonalization, all that. And it wasn't until she met, finally consulted some uh, people who were enlightened who said, oh, well, this is, you know, you've... Uh, that's what you have experienced. Right. And then, then when she stopped resisting it, so to speak, when she stopped thinking something was wrong, then the, the heavens opened up for her. Even though I don't think that we are not ready for it. I mean, we might feel like it, but just that you have this experience, and then you're right. I mean, it can really become fear, because you just don't know what's happening to you. Unity. Yes, unity. You don't even have the word. It never can... Um, 
render what you what you uh, experience at the time. I think, but you see, I can just speak for myself in this in this particular case. The difference between what happened to me and Susan uh, was this. I had gotten to the stage in the spiritual path where I felt myself to be a burden. I saw this was the source of my suffering. This was, I felt uh, trapped in this self. And so when the same thing happened to me, I recognized, oh, this is liberation. Now, she didn't feel herself as a burden. She hadn't come to that point. She, didn't, she hadn't gone through the spiritual practices that would show her that the source of, of her suffering was herself. So when it vanished, it was like losing something precious. When it vanished for me, it was good riddance. You know what I mean? So this is part of what a spiritual path does for you in this sense of preparation. It's also true this. We seek. We can't help seeking. Whether you're on a spiritual path or not, you're seeking happiness. We all seek happiness because intuitively, in our deepest sense, we know the mystics are right. We know there is such a thing as ultimate happiness. And we know that something's dreadfully wrong with our lives as they are. I mean, if you're, if you're already happy, you don't seek happiness. There's nothing to seek. So we're always seeking happiness, whether we're seeking it from worldly pleasures and things or whether we're seeking it spiritually. So... In a certain sense, you can't help but go on a spiritual path at a certain point when you realize that worldly pleasures are not going to make you ultimately happy. And if you still have this drive to be happy, you will naturally go on a spiritual path. That's grace, too, you see, in a certain sense. When you look back on it, none of it was your choice. You were driven to it. It's only within the delusion you feel like it's, it's your choice, you know. Why don't we bring the formal part of the evening, uh, the evening, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning mm -hmm. to a close, and you're welcome to stay and have some tea out there and check out the library, and we will see you anon.